can be dismissed to Children's Church at this time. Thank you, Luke. That was, that was wonderful. So, like Tom mentioned, it is D-Now weekend, and guess what? Surprise for all of you, you are now joining us for session four of D-Now weekend. So, welcome to D-Now. I'm, I'm glad that you all could make it. Throughout the, this morning, I am going to be unpacking some of, of what we've covered this weekend, kind of the theme of, of what the students have studied. Uh, so we'll get into all that as we go. But before we start, one of the things I, I always want to do on Sunday morning of D-Now Weekend is I want to acknowledge everyone that played a part in the weekend. Because listen, we can talk about the planning and we can talk about the execution of all of it, that doesn't happen without a church body that is faithful to loving the students in this church. So now listen, I, I know that it might make you uncomfortable, those of you that helped, to be acknowledged. But this is going to be a teaching moment for me, for the students. So I, 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 need you, I need you to work with me here. So, if you provided snacks, if you served as a host home, if you served as a small group leader, if you hosted students in your home yesterday for lunch, if you provided lunch for students yesterday, if you provided transportation, if you provided meals, if you served in some capacity during D-Now Weekend, will you, will you please stand up for me for, for just a second? Just a second. Remember, I'm teaching students here, so, so just, just trust me. Trust me. All right. Now, students, I'm just going to focus on you all for just a second. I, I want you to look around and see how many people had to serve in order to make this possible for you this weekend. And it's not just this year. This is every year. We have to have this many people who love you and serve you in order to make a weekend like this possible. And so what I want you to remember is that we've already talked about this. If you're in Christ, you have been gifted to serve within the church. And so I need you to look at these people and understand these people have taken time out of their weekend to serve you. So now, if you're in Christ, give back to this body and serve according to the gift that God has given you. And as you grow and graduate and move on to bigger and better things, take these lessons that you learn from these people and go and do likewise in other congregations that the gospel might be spread. You can be seated. So, have you ever found yourself obligated to something that you just could not get out from under. Like you, you were committed to doing something, but then something better came along that you could not do because you were committed to something else. You, know, you had made a prior commitment, and so you had to miss out on this thing that you now really wanted to do. When I was a senior at, at Alabama, I had two of my close friends from back home uh, decide to get married during football season. And I know some of you are probably going to think, hey, you probably should have picked better friends. So their, their wedding, it didn't just fall on uh, a date when Alabama was playing some, some no-name school. It was the day of the Arkansas game, which I know some of you are also probably going to be like, I thought you said it wasn't a no-name school, it's, it's Arkansas. Back kid. This was back when Arkansas had, had Bobby Petrino as their head coach. And so if you remember those days of Arkansas football, they were actually a really good football team. I think that year they even came into the season considered a dark horse national title contender. So when they came to Tuscaloosa early in the season, it was, it was a big deal. It was a big game. People were expecting Arkansas to really give Bama a run for their money that day. But I had my friend's wedding. 
And it wasn't so simple as if I had just RSVP'd and said, yeah, I'll, I'll be there, and then could say, you know what, <laughs> I'm, I'm not going to be able to make it, I'm sorry. I, I was a groomsman in the wedding, so there was, there was no getting out of the wedding, and of course it started at 2 o'clock, and you know, it was the 2.30 CBS game, so there was no getting to the football game. And, and now, of course, I was happy for my friends. They're great friends. I love them to death. But I really wanted to be at the football game. It was my senior year. I didn't want to miss a game. So if they had said to me, hey, we're going to change plans and we're going to have a small family-only ceremony, or if they had said, you know what, it's football season. We're going to move the wedding to before season or after the season, I'd have been like, I'm so sad, but roll tide. You know, a change would have had to have happened that released me from this commitment that I otherwise couldn't get out of. So in our text this morning, we find Paul addressing those who, who knew the law about how they had been released from it. But whereas in my example, I was bound to something that was better for me. It was better for me to be at my friend's wedding and to celebrate their marriage than it was for me to be at the football game. These people under the law had not been bound to something that was, that was better for them. The law wasn't a bad thing, but it was limited in what it could do. Being that it could not save anyone from their sins, it was actually a burden because through the law, sin flourished. But as we'll see in the text, God has done a work in Christ Jesus to free sinners from the law and from sin. So let me pray for us, and we're going to look at Romans 7, verses 1 to 6. Father, God, we thank you. And we thank you for the ability to gather together. We thank you, Lord, for the, the ability to sing praises to you, to declare truth to you of who you have told us that you are, who you have showed us that you are through your word and through your Son. Lord God, thank you for the ability to proclaim truth to one another, to pray for one another, and to care for those in this body that are burdened. And Lord God, as there are opportunities to serve those in this body who are hurting, Lord God, may we do so, and may we do so quickly. Lord God, not for our fame, but that your name would be proclaimed, that the power of the gospel to transform hearts and minds and life and bind us together according to the great work that you have accomplished in Christ. Lord, may it be done. Lord God, as we look to your word this morning, teach us. Lord God, what only you can. Lord God, transform us by the power of your word, which is the only thing that can. And Lord God, may you be glorified in this place today. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. So like I said, our text this morning is from Romans 7, verses 1 to 6, and it says this. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person as only as long as he lives? For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now 
we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we may serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. So I told you all before, I'm a good Baptist, so I always have three points. I'm sorry they don't alliterate. I'm not that good. And so our first point is this, to belong to Christ requires death. So in order to, to incorporate us all into session four of D now, what we need to do is we need to kind of do a little, a little backtracking and walk through everywhere that we've been up into this point so that we can kind of get a good framework for this passage that we just read. See, the students and I, we began this weekend by focusing on death. First, the death of Christ Jesus, and then the death of our old self, the old man, who we were outside of Christ. In Romans 5, 12 to 21, we saw the spiritual state of humanity under the representation of Adam. In that text, we see that Adam's decision to disobey the command that God gave him regarding the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden has affected all of mankind, because through his sin, sin has spread to all people. Because of his sin, we all receive a nature of sin, thereby making us sinners from the moment of conception. Paul, uh, David writes about this in Psalm 51, verse 5, if you want to look that up. Therefore, we are all sinners because we all choose to sin, and we all choose to sin because we are sinners. And we read that through sin comes death, which we understand to be physical, spiritual, and eternal. Our physical death is a direct consequence for man's sin as promised to Adam by God in the garden. Our spiritual death is to be separated from God, not knowing him or following him because of our sin. And without intervention, eternal death is our final punishment for sin, being ever subject to God's wrath in place of torment that is hell. But God did intervene on our behalf, sending his son, Jesus our Lord, to make atonement for our sin. Jesus submitted to the will of God perfectly, never once sinning, and even still subjected himself to death upon the cross. He took all of God's wrath against sin, upon himself, bearing our own sins in his sinless body, dying in our place. But he was resurrected from the death, from the dead, to glory, appointed as the heir to all things, given the name that is above every name. And all of those, but only those, who turn from sin and believe in him, he has given the free gift of God's grace. Through the grace of God, those who repent and believe stand justified before God through the sacrifice of Christ. Believing in Him, we are made right with God, having been made new through His power by the Holy Spirit. And so that leads us into to Romans 6, where we see in the first 11 verses that this means that we too have died with Him by faith, through grace, by faith in Christ Jesus, the old sinful man that we were outside of Christ has died with him. By faith, Paul says in verse 4 of Romans 6, we have been buried therefore with him by baptism into death. This was in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, we too might walk in newness 
of life. In Christ, we have died to sin and are now living by faith in him who died on our behalf. What this means is that we have been set free from sin and are now alive to God in Christ Jesus. Because of this, our mindset about sin has changed. No longer do we freely engage in sin as if an increase in sin might allow grace to be shown all the more. This type of thinking about sin and about grace is foolishness, as Paul says in verses 12 to 23. There, Paul explains that the believer cannot continue in sin, thinking that grace allows for it. Because to continue in sin would be to continue to submit ourselves to being enslaved by sin. Paul teaches that either presenting oneself to sin or presenting oneself to obedience makes an individual a slave to the one that they obey. And Paul's argument is that a follower of Christ cannot continue submitting to sin because sin leads to death. Instead, having died to sin and having been set free from it, we submit to Christ as slaves to righteousness. And as slaves to righteousness, we bear good fruit in line with the free gift of grace that we have received in Christ Jesus. This leads to our sanctification, our being made to be like Christ, with eternal life at its end. This is for all who, turning from sins, have embraced the call of God in Christ, submitting to His Lordship. So I know that's a pretty long overview of, of how we, we've gotten here, but it's important that we understand the backstory before we deal with the text we're in today. So when we come to verse 1 of chapter 7, we see that Paul is really just continuing in the same thought stream that he left off with in Romans chapter 6. He's coming back to this idea of having been set free, but here he turns his attention to the law. When he says, in verse 1, for I am speaking to those who know the law, he's referring to those in the church at Rome who were familiar with the Mosaic law. And so he brings up the law to remind them that those under the law were only bound to it while they were alive. I mean, that makes sense, right? That, that someone would only be bound to the law while alive because once they were dead, they would be doing a whole lot of nothing. They would not be adhering to the law. That makes sense. So to reinforce this, Paul uses the example of a woman whose husband has passed away. So according to the law, as long as a woman's husband was alive, she was bound to him. She was recognized as his wife. Should she decide to leave her husband while he still lived to go live with another man, according to the law, she would have been an adulteress, as Paul says in verse 3. But if the husband died, the woman was free to marry whomever she chose. And in that case, she would not be considered an adulteress because she was no longer bound to the man who had died. 
And now this text doesn't get into all the intricacies of marriage. It doesn't talk about what marriage symbolizes. It doesn't deal with Jesus' teaching on marriage and divorce and so on because Paul isn't trying to deal with those things in this text. The point is that as the woman whose husband had died was no longer bound by the obligation of the law, neither are those who are trusting in Jesus bound to the law because through their own death and the death of Christ, they have died to the law. That's what Paul is showing us in verse 4. And it's really an interesting reversal of of roles in verse 4 from what we get in verses 2 and 3. There, the woman's husband had to die in order for her to be released from the law, from being bound to him. In verse 4, Paul makes it clear that we are only able to be dead to the law, to be released from being bound to the law through our own death to the law, which comes through the death of Christ Jesus. We have died, as Paul says, to the law through the body of Christ, which directs us back to Romans 6, where the old sinful person that we were outside of Christ has been crucified and buried with him in order that the new righteous man might be raised up with him. Paul says in Galatians 3 that to be under the law is to be under a curse. Though Paul says in Romans 7.12 that the law is good and its commandments are holy and righteous and good, to be under it is a curse because man could not be justified before God through works of the law. The law was good because it revealed sin and the need for a Savior, but it did not provide one. Therefore, salvation did not come through the law. Only condemnation because sin distorted the law using it as a conduit to feed man's natural bent and desire to defy the righteousness of God. Man could never perfectly keep the law. And the penalty for that is death, which is the curse of the law. Now, of course, we know that the law was given specifically to the Jews. Upon having been called out of Egypt by God... The law laid out how they were to live as God's chosen people and a holy nation amongst all these pagan nations, thereby serving as a light in the world to the one true God. It was a system of commandments that the Israelites were to submit to so as to be found pleasing before God. I mean, remember what it says, if you do these things, it will go well for you in the land. But in our context, I want you to think about how often you hear people either say directly or through their actions show that they believe that their being loved by God is rooted primarily in their ability to live as supposedly good people. It might be the the professing atheist or agnostic who, who claims that if there were a God, this deity would be pleased with the good things that they do and the bad things that they do not do. When they stand, or should they ever stand before some judgment seat, well, then God would have to be pleased with them in that moment because the balance scale worked out in their favor. It might be the person who professes belief in God, but who doesn't want to follow the teachings of Scripture because they think that they do enough good things on their own to be accepted by God without having to deal with that pesky Bible and all those hypocrites in the church. Maybe it's someone who's wrestling with faith because they don't think that they're good enough 
for God to ever love them. It may even be the believer whose checklist approach to faith acts as if their status before God is solely based on doing Christian things, like reading the Bible and praying and going to church and serving others, which are all great things, are things that we need to be doing. But these things in and of themselves do not save us. And so to act as if they do is a flawed way of thinking. Being bound to a works-based system is not beyond our comprehension. It just manifests itself in different ways for us. But Paul says in verse 4 that God has decisively done away with any notion that entrance into his kingdom is based on the work or merit of man. Our entrance into the kingdom of God is solely based upon the merit of Christ Jesus, the Son of God. Through his crucified flesh, we have been set free from the notion that our works can save us. Salvation comes by grace through faith in Christ Jesus alone. As Paul says in Ephesians 2, 9, not by works so that no one may boast. And because of that, Paul says that we now belong to him. We are bound to him. We're free from the notion that salvation can be earned through our feeble attempts at righteousness. Our salvation comes through faith in the one who gives to us his own righteousness. Because of Jesus' atoning work on the cross, our sin debt has been dealt with. It has been paid if only we repent and believe. And in his resurrection, he receives those who do repent and believe in him as the sinless son of God. He's paid for the sins of the world through the breaking of his body on the cross. Belonging to him, he works within us by his spirit that we might serve in his kingdom for his glory. And so that leads to our second thing for this morning, which is that Christ renews the works of those that belong to him. So recently I decided that I wanted to improve my workouts, so I bought a Fitbit to help me keep up with my activity. I run a few times a week, and this is not a humble brag. Let me explain. I run because I like to eat. So my running is not because I like to run. Running is miserable. And show me a person who actually enjoys running, and I'll tell you someone who might not be telling you the whole truth. I'm, I'm kidding. But I like to eat, so I like to run so that I can eat more. So before the Fitbit... I was having to, to guess, based off of the odometer in my car, how far I was actually running. You know, I would drive the route as closely as I could, because believe it or not, it would be frowned upon if you, you know, put your car up on the sidewalk and drove down the sidewalk to try to, try to measure it. I, I, don't, I don't know. I guess there's laws against that. So because I could only kind of loosely drive my route, I was only kind of guessing as to, as to the distance that I was going. But now, thanks to my Fitbit and the little armband that I have that, that I can bring, so I can bring my phone along with me, I don't have to guess my distance anymore. The Fitbit communicates with the Fitbit app that's on the phone. The app connects to my phone's GPS. And so it tells me exactly where I've been, which also tells the man exactly where I've been. So, you know, whatever. It's okay. I like to work out. This provides me with a bit more accurate picture of my 
work out, and y'all are going to have to pretend when I use my hands right here, but it provides me with like a, a, a neat little map that shows exactly where I've run. There's, there really is a map here. Y'all just probably can't see it so far away. It collects more, dis, more, more information than just distance, though. It, it shows me that. It gives me an accurate picture of my distance, but it lets me know my heart rate. It shows me calories burned. It shows me pace, all stuff that I couldn't keep up with before. And so because of that, it helps me to have an overall better workout because I know when I need to start pushing a little harder to meet the goals that I've set for myself. You know, my runs, they, they were good exercise before. It's not like they were bad, but now they're better because I'm aware of what it is that I'm actually doing, kind of. So coming back to the text, Paul is once again dealing with how works-based salvation simply cannot work. There he says, for while we were living in the flesh, which is to say not believing in Christ Jesus, for while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. So once again, we're confronted with the tension that existed with the law. As we've already seen, the law in and of itself was not bad. It was given by God, so it was a good thing. But the law was totally insufficient to save, and Paul shows us why just a little further on in Romans 7. This is what I'm going to read from is Romans 7, 7 to 10. He says, What then shall we say that the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. So if we were to go back to Romans 5, and we will for just a moment, there Paul talks about how under Adam, sin is shown to have continued to spread because everybody died. Everyone continued to die. Despite the fact that they did not have a command as Adam did, everyone still died, which Paul uses to show that sin was still spreading. So it's not like Paul here when he says, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. It's not like he's saying that sin was not there. What he's saying is he's showing how sin manipulated the law through our sin nature. There's a lot more that we could probably get into there, but we just don't have time for this morning. But what we need to get is that what Paul wants us to see is that through receiving a command, sin took the opportunity to tempt him to defy the command of God. And because Paul was still in the flesh, he couldn't resist the temptation. And it's the same for all of us. Outside of Christ, we're held captive to our sin nature. Not only are we incapable of living to please Him, it's against our very nature to want to please Him. Even those who do not have the law, in them sin is still at work, defiling our very conscience, as Paul says in his letter to Titus in Titus 1.15. Through knowledge, though knowledge of right and wrong exists, Our natural bent towards sin leads us to defy the perfect and true moral law of God Almighty. Paul has dealt with that in Romans 2. 
And these sinful passions, according to Paul, work through all that we are, through our thoughts, our actions, and our very affections in order to bear fruit for death. There aren't enough good things in the world that we can do to break the shackles of sin and death. So any works that are done outside of Christ are effectively dead and meaningless in the scope of eternity. It doesn't mean that all the works themselves are bad per se. If someone who is outside of Christ provides food and shelter to a homeless man we're still going to say that they did a good thing, right? That's a good thing to do. We should want that to happen. But that work cannot save that person. They're still under Adam and thus still subject to God's wrath against sin. And there's no amount of good works that can accomplish what the single work Christ Jesus has accomplished. Paul makes this transition in verse 6, reminding his audience that they are no longer under the law, having died to it. And this is only possible because of the once and for all work of Christ Jesus upon the cross. Because he bled and died in our place through repentance and faith in him, we are able to do good things at the leading of the Spirit, which now glorify him and make much of him. In Christ, through the working of the Spirit in us, we're now free to submit to what are his good and righteous commands. Having been transferred into his kingdom as holy and blameless children of of God, we're now able to live according to the standards of His kingdom, being that we have become imitators of Him. This is the new way of the Spirit that we're able to live according to under the righteousness of Christ. Indeed, we will be living according to the righteousness of God as we're being made more like Him. Now, this isn't to say that we won't still have bumps in the road and won't still have failures, even substantial failures. Though we are in Christ, there is still the effect of having been in Adam through the sin nature that still exists. I don't know if y'all remember Kyle. He leads worship for us during D-Now every year. He couldn't be with us this morning, but one of the things he, he prayed yesterday was talking about how there is yet the presence of sin in this world, though we are free from slavery to it. But Paul is, in, in my opinion, Paul is still going to deal with this tension of these dueling natures in the back half of Romans 7. But what we're seeing is that in Christ, the works that we perform have a renewed purpose. No longer are our works only able to lead to condemnation or empty efforts at moralism, even the good things. Instead, guided by the Spirit, they are truly good works that serve a greater purpose by providing opportunity to share the gospel and in doing so store up reward for us in the kingdom of Christ. In Christ, we're made free from the mentality that if I just work a little harder, if I just do a little more, then, then God will love me. Rather than working for the love of God, which we cannot do, we're working because of the love of God that is for us in Christ Jesus. Paul writes in Ephesians 2.10, For we are his workmanship, 
created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Hear that. Before he ever called you, God had set aside good works that he intends for you to do for the sake of his name. And having sanctified us, this being set aside by the blood of his son Jesus, by grace through faith, we begin walking in these good works, bearing good fruit that proclaim his power to raise the dead to life. By serving God in the new way of the Spirit, his glorious might and power is shown through the transformation of our thoughts and our actions and our very desires. Belonging to Christ... Our desires will be for our lives to point to him in all that we do as he is the one who has ransomed us with his own blood. And in ransoming us, he sends his spirit to dwell within us for the purpose of renewing everything about us. So rather than continuing as enemies of the kingdom, we serve as citizens in it for the purpose of accomplishing the mission that Christ has given to his church. Our goal, our purpose as followers of Christ is to make more disciples of Christ Jesus. And if we're serving in the new way of the Spirit, this will actually be what we desire to do as well. We will want to see others come to faith in Christ. And we will want to see others mature as faithful followers of Christ Jesus so that they too will be making disciples. And it won't just manifest itself as desires, but as desires that actually lead to action. Sharing the gospel with our friends, our neighbors, our relatives, our co-workers. It will lead to walking in obedience before others, believers and non-believers alike, as an example to follow as we ourselves follow the example of Christ Jesus. We will make time to know the scriptures by studying them alone and studying them with our families, and studying them with our church. And we will prayerfully consider them. By his word and through his spirit, God would continue to transform us. And we will take the things that we learn in scripture, and we will spend time with others, and we will walk them through those same scriptures that God might work in their lives to the same end. This is just a glimpse of the way that God has called us to serve Him in the new way of the Spirit. But none of this happens apart from our dying to works through the life-giving work of Christ on the cross and our belonging to Him, the one raised from the dead by the power of God. Through repentance of sins and faith, however, it does happen. We are Who we are is made brand new. And in that, we're able to love him with all that we are. And so that leads to my last point for this morning, which is this. Renewed in Christ, the believer is able to love the Lord our God with all that we are. Mark 12, 28 to 30 says this. And one of the scribes came up and heard, him disputing with one, heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, asked him, Which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, 
and with all your strength. Mark 12:30 has served as the theme verse, if you will, for our Disciple Now uh, weekend this year. Through the renewing work of Christ, who makes us new by grace through, through faith in Him who paid our sin debt upon the cross, we are capable of living according to this command, to love the Lord with all that we are. Through Christ, our heart is made new as we receive the new covenant written on our hearts that we may know the commands of God and obey them. Through Christ, our minds are being made new as the Spirit transforms the way that we think about sin. No longer is sin something that we treat flippantly, but is something that we wholeheartedly reject, desiring for the grace of God to be shown in taking redeemed sinners and empowering them to live according to His purposes. Through Christ, we find our true, that true strength is not found in just doing whatever we want, whenever we want, and however we want, no matter what anyone may say to us. Instead, we find true strength in submitting to Him, the one who empowers us to take part in His redemptive purposes for this world that He has made. And through Christ, the deepest longings of our soul are for the good works that He has prepared for us to walk in. Freed from strivings to earn God's love by works and the subsequent sin that that invites. And so as we close, I want to give you a, a couple of applications that I would encourage you to prayerfully consider. First, what, what might it look like for you to have your desires renewed and reshaped to reflect those of God? This can and it will play itself out in a lot of different ways, a lot of different scenarios. But for you, perhaps it comes through making decisions that, that honor Christ, knowing very well that it could cost you friendships, it could cost you the respect of your loved ones, it could cost you a promotion, it could cost you your job entirely. Perhaps that's as simple as choosing to walk away from gossip, or perhaps it's as complicated as calling someone out for doing something that is morally repugnant because, and then that we know is incompatible with the desires of God. Maybe it means letting go of something that you and your family do, whether that's some activity in school, something like college football. Maybe it's a special vacation spot. Maybe it's a special relationship because it discourages holiness and takes away from my capacity to invest in the church that God has gifted me to serve in. Maybe it means passing up on a, on a promotion or some club or organization that you've long wanted to be a part of or some team that you're excited to have finally made because being involved in that would completely kill your ability to serve in the church of Jesus Christ. Maybe it means forgiving someone, though they have horribly wronged you, because that's what Christ has done for us. Maybe that means submitting to suffering, whether that's a harsh word or a physical blow, as you submit in obedience to Christ, just as He submitted to the Father in suffering the greatest suffering that the world has ever known for your sake and for mine. Maybe that means serving within the body out of a desire to see other believers grow and mature in their faith. Maybe that means staying in a church 
where you see God working in you and through you despite every part of you wanting to go. Living according to the new way of the Spirit, free from works that enslave to works that through belonging to Christ will be changing the way that we think about life and the very things that we desire out of it. Do you find that your desires are often for the things of God? If not, then they're for things of this world. And this is a sin to repent of, turning to Christ, your Lord, in faith. Second, do you treat good works as if they are what save you? Listen to me. If you're living as if your works can save you, then you've invited a crushing burden upon yourself. You are living under the weight of something that you cannot remove on your own. And on top of that, you're acting as if the work of Christ upon the cross is insufficient for you. This is an attitude that must be repented of, remembering or perhaps believing for the first time that it is Christ alone whose work provides our salvation. Jesus himself says in Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 to 30, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will have rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Resting in his finished work, we submit to the work he has called us to do calling others to come into his kingdom as we go about the work of making disciples this work that he has entrusted to his bride, the church. And third and final, if you're not trusting in Jesus, I would ask you to think about what we have discussed this morning that Christ has done on your behalf. Outside of Christ, we are dead in our sins, meaning simply that we live for sin. We live to defy the good and righteous rule that God has over us, the authority that he wields over his creation. Having defied him to live in sin, our punishment is just, to be cast out from him for all eternity, to experience nothing but his wrath in the place of torment, hell. And that is what we all deserve. And yet in his love and in his mercy and his grace, he has made a way that through his son who bled and died on our behalf on the cross, bearing his sins and our sins in his own body, we might be saved through repentance and faith, all of which made possible through his resurrection from the dead, where he now reigns at the right hand of the Father, awaiting the day he returns for his bride, the church. So if you have not yet placed your faith and trust in him, I would invite you today for today to be that day. At this time, I'm going to ask the ushers to go ahead and come forward, to go ahead and uh, receive this morning's offering, and ask the praise team to come up and lead us in a time of singing praise to the one who paid it all for us. Let me pray. Father, Lord, we thank you, God, for this day. We thank you, Lord, for this time that we can be in your word. God, your word is all that is powerful in this room. Lord God, may you work through your word to accomplish the work that you have set out to accomplish from eternity past. Lord God, may you be praised in our response to your word. Lord God, and I pray and ask that you would work through your word to lead us in holiness and righteousness. Father, forgive us for our strivings, our weak and feeble attempts at trying to earn righteousness, to earn salvation through works, forsaking what you have done through Christ. Lord, forgive us for forsaking the works that you have given to us to do through the shed blood of Christ. Lord God, call us out of our apathy. 
Lord God, call us out of our strivings to be renewed by the life-giving power of the blood of Jesus. Through repentance and faith, Lord God, we would follow you in obedience that your name would be all in all, that your name would be lifted high, that you would be praised and glorified because you, Lord, alone deserve it. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.